Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Community Perspectives episode with Dr. Michael Fellings. I'm your host, James. And I'm your other host, Marla. And today we'll be discussing the paper titled Safety and Efficacy of Rylazole in Acute Spinal Cord Injury Study, a Multicenter Randomized Placebo-Controlled Double-Blinded Trial, which was published in the Journal of Neurotrauma in July 2023. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Fellings. Dr. Fellings is a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Toronto, and Asian members may also recognize Dr. Fellings as the Apple Award winner at Asia's 2022 Annual Scientific Meeting. Welcome, Dr. Fellings. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Appreciate the invitation. So this is a pretty complicated study. It's one of multiple phases of study that you and your team have gone through to reach this level. Can you talk a little bit about what are the differences between different phases of a trial and why is it important that we go through this stepwise um, systematic way of presenting trials? Yes, thank you. So uh, the trial in, in question is what's referred to as a phase three trial, which is generally um, a trial that's a, a large randomized control study that is designed to prove or disprove the efficacy of a treatment such as a drug. There's um, typically kind of four phases of studies that um, are in the literature. A phase one study is generally a, a smaller study, which is usually open label, and is to look at the safety and tolerability of a drug or a procedure. A phase two study is a preliminary efficacy study that is designed to see if there's signal. And then based on the phase two study, you then are in a better position to design a phase three randomized control study. And then a phase four study is a study where, okay, the phase three study has been applied, but we're going to look at the post phase three phase as it's been applied in the community. What's the experience with um, a treatment in the community? And so in the case of Riliazole, so Riliazole is a drug which is currently approved as a neuroprotective drug in a condition called ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or you may, some people have referred to this as Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a neurodegenerative condition affecting the brain and the spinal cord. We don't know the cause of it, whether it's a virus or genetic, or we, we really don't know the cause of it. And really is all was shown in clinical trials to slow down the rate of nerve cell degeneration. It allows people to live longer and maintain their quality of life a bit longer, but they ultimately, unfortunately, succumb from the disease. And so um, based on basic science evidence that really is all uh, reduces cell injury and cell death after acute spinal cord trauma, we then thought, okay, you know, this looks really promising to move into the clinic. So what we did is we kind of combined a phase one and two study together. And people will commonly do this, and we call this a phase one, two A study. And so we published this a few years ago 
Um, I did this in collaboration with uh, Dr. Grossman from Houston and the North American Clinical Trials Network. We showed that the drug was safe and we had um, a preliminary sense that there were interesting beneficial effects seen. This was a smaller study, 36 patients got really is all, there were 36 control subjects. And then based on this, we did this larger phase three randomized control trial that we're uh, discussing today. Okay, great. And then with that, can you explain a little bit about your main objectives for this study and how they relate to the group that you were looking at? Yeah, so we decided to focus on people with a cervical spinal cord injury, but we are hoping that the results would be more broadly applicable to everyone with um, spinal cord injury. And the reason we focus on cervical is the most common type of injury. About two-thirds of people have a cervical spinal cord injury. And the, the readouts that we use where we measure motor strength and, and sensation, the outcome measure that we use, which is called the um, Asia scale, or sometimes it's referred to as the Inski scale, it tends to be more accurate to assess for changes in people's cervical injury, mainly because we can examine changes in hand and upper extremity function. So we focus on cervical injuries, adults between the ages of 18 and 75. And then we focused on people who have a motor complete injury, Asia A injury, people who are motor complete but sensory incomplete, so Asia B injury, and then people who have a severe motor incomplete injury, which is called an Asia C injury. And those patients were randomized to get a placebo, so the drug looked like Riliazole, but it was a placebo versus Riliazole. And neither the patients nor the doctors, the treating teams knew which was which. So they were, this was called a double blind study and it was randomized. The allocation was randomly assigned. And then the main outcomes that we looked at were the motor improvements. So we looked at the upper extremity motor scores, which are impor particularly important for people with a cervical injury. And then we looked at the total motor scores. And then we had what are called secondary outcomes. They're important, but you have to designate what's the primary outcome in a trial like this. And then we looked at a whole host of secondary outcomes, including things such as sensation, pain, and various quality of life outcomes, as well as more sensitive measures of uh, hand and upper extremity function, such as the GRASP score. Can you talk a little bit about the medication itself? How does it work? If I were to take the medication based on this trial, when would I be getting it? And um, any side effects that me or my doctor might have to look out for if I do get this medication? Yeah, so Riliazole is a drug that blocks sodium channels. This was referred to as a sodium glutamate antagonist, and it affects the um, early mechanisms that are involved in the acute phases of spinal cord injury. The drug is best given within the first few hours after injury, and in the clinical trial, we limited it to the first 12 hours after injury. Now, we don't know whether it maybe would also help if you gave it a bit later, but this was the time limit in the clinical trial. 
The drug itself has a long safety track record because it's been used for years and years in people with ALS. And we now have examined the safety profile in patients. And in general, it's extremely well tolerated. The drug is metabolized through the liver. So people who have severe liver disease would have trouble metabolizing the drug and it's recommended that they not use the, the drug. But even people with mild liver disease can use the drug. Um, we The doctor needs to measure the liver function. This can be done very easily through blood tests. And then in addition, we recommend that um, basic blood counts be assessed as well. Very rarely, Ruliazol might affect the blood count levels, although we never saw this in the clinical trials. With long-term use of Ruliazol in people who have ALS, about 5% of patients who are taking the drug long-term need to go on a drug holiday because there are changes that occur in the liver function. In the spinal cord injury uh, patients, we actually didn't have to stop the Ruliazol in anyone because it was kind of very well tolerated. So it's best given early after the injury. And um, it, one needs to look at the, uh, at the liver function test, but in general, it's quite well tolerated. Some of the other areas that really is all works on, which can be beneficial, is really is all reduces neuropathic pain. So it's actually a second or a third line drug that can be used as an option to reduce neuropathic pain. In other types of models of non-traumatic forms of spinal cord injury, such as a condition called cervical myelopathy, Riliazole has been shown to reduce neuropathic pain. Okay, great. So like with that, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel that these study findings might eventually translate into improved care for these individuals? And how do you feel like this medication possibly helps one with someone with a cervical spinal cord injury based on the findings of this study? Yeah, so um, the way the trial was designed is you have to, even though you measure many things in terms of outcomes, and it's recognized that spinal cord injury can't be assessed just by one outcome, you have to pick a main outcome. So what is the most important outcome? And that's a really hard choice, but we picked the motor scores from the upper extremity and the, and the, the, the total motor scores. And then we looked at a whole variety of uh, secondary um, outcomes. So when we looked at the whole study as a whole, we did not see a significant impact on the whole group of patients. The main reason for that is that we, we had to stop the study before the uh, optimal number of patients was enrolled because of the COVID pandemic. So then in the, uh, in the paper, we focused a lot on the secondary outcomes. So there's a lot of importance on the secondary outcomes. So some of the things we saw was that, say in, in people with a severe injury, we saw that there was a lowering of the motor level. So in other words, say if somebody came in with a C4 Asia A level, we saw an improvement um, in the number of motor levels. So people tended to get um, additional motor levels back at a greater rate than they might have with the control subject. So what that might mean is that someone might have better hand and upper extremity strength. So that was one interesting thing that we saw. 
Another thing that we saw in the people who had a severe injury, but a motor incomplete injury, there it was quite clear that there were pretty large changes seen in motor function. So if somebody has an incomplete cervical injury at the outset, it's certainly an option for physicians to consider the use of Riliazole, even on the basis of this clinical trial uh, data. And then some of the other things we looked at were things kind of that are maybe not always as easy to measure, things like quality of life. So where, you know, you ask someone, you know, okay, um, do you feel better? Is your function better? Do you have less pain? And we can measure this through different ways. One is through um, a technique called the spinal cord independence measure, where we kind of get an assessment independence. And when we looked at that, subscore, we did see positive effects on the spinal cord independence measure. So it looked like patients were more kind of were more independent. So kind of taking a step back, it looks like there are positive effects that are being seen. There's a lowering of the neurological level. There seems to be some improvement in motor function, particularly with a less severe injury. And overall, the patients were um, have reporting better quality of life outcomes. So this obviously seems like a really exciting trial. You know, I'm if I take this medication, maybe I'll get some strength back in my arms. Maybe I'll have a better functional outcome. Now, if I myself or, you know, I have a family member that had a spinal cord injury and I'm interested in learning more about how to get involved with these types of trials, um, is there a way that I can, you know, communicate or look up these types of trials to try to find what's going on and if I might be a good candidate and how would I go about doing that? That's uh, that's such a good question. So I, I think that like what, what I think doctors and scientists are recognizing is that it's not enough to say publish the paper because there's so much medical information that's coming out there. The information is just overwhelming. And for busy clinicians, you, you can't possibly stay abreast of all of the information. And so I would say that for myself as a clinical, as a doctor, as a clinical researcher, uh, publishing the study is the beginning of another conversation. And so we're now in an effort to try to disseminate the knowledge and get at the knowledge. And so, um, you know, how do you, um, you know, get this? knowledge. So I think um, the, you know, the internet is a great source of information, but you do need to be careful because you want to go to reputable sites, right? And so as an example, well, this, this uh, podcast is being sponsored by the American Spinal Injury Association or Asia. You know, Asia, I think, is one of the most respected societies related to spinal cord injury. So going to the Asia website, there will be information that is posted. So for example, like this podcast, right? You can get access uh, to this. Um, you can look at other organizations such as the Christopher and Dana Reef Foundation. They have um, a site uh, there, which is uh, focused on people with lived experience for, um, and for their families. And so the things that are more available. You know, um, PubMed is, it's a bit more scientific, 
But PubMed, which is the internet form of the Library of Congress, is freely available to all members of the public. And so, you know, you'd have to know a little bit about how to do that, but you can put in keywords such as spinal cord injury, clinical trials, and out will come information. Now, that can sometimes be kind of a little bit overwhelming, but sometimes, you know, there are review articles that will come where you can get a sense of that. And then also, you know, speak to your healthcare practitioners. You know, that's their job to kind of to stay abreast of, you know, the information and, you know, you can kind of get their, you know, you can get their um, advice um, on these um, matters as well. Okay, great. And then with something that you said earlier when you were mentioning the process of the study, I know you said that COVID-19 did cause an interruption. I wanted to ask, how did that impact the research process as a whole, and then also your ability to draw conclusions from the data you already had and were continuing to compare? Well, in, the, in, in April of 2020, if you can kind of remember where you're in April 2020, and you know, it's interesting as we're emerging of COVID, I'm trying, in, in some regards, I'm trying to forget it because it was such a challenging period. But remember where we were in April 2020, right? We were pretty much shut down. Remember what New York City looked like? Remember Italy, right? And we were just trying to stay alive and we were trying to keep society functioning and trying to figure out what was going on. And, you know, clinics were shut down. We were going to virtual clinics and only the essential medical services were being provided. And as a result of this, research, like clinical research into non-COVID areas was not prioritized. And so while the care for people with spinal cord injuries continued because it was an essential medical issue, clinical research basically got shut down. And as a result of of this, and there were also concerns around the potential to expose research staff in a COVID environment, This it was just decided to shut this down. And things started getting ramped up in, later in 2021 and then 2022. And so we got the COVID, the, um, the RISCUS trial got shut down in April of 2020. And after trying to keep the study afloat for well over a year, the difficult decision was made by the sponsors to shut down the study. So we did enroll 193 patients. So it's one of the largest trials that's been done in the setting of acute spinal cord injury. What's interesting is that we did what's called a fragility analysis. So I'm, I'm using now a bit of a scientific term. Well, what does that mean? It means that, okay, let's just do a thought experiment, let's say where we were, we might've been able to continue. It's been estimated by the statisticians that if we would have enrolled you know, 20 or 30 more patients in the study, we could have seen even you know, more significant results. It's estimated that around 4,000 clinical trials around the world were shut down as a result of COVID. And so there's been a lot of recommendations that have now occurred in terms of how to analyze the results. And so I referred to the secondary outcomes, you know, when I was talking about the quality of life outcomes and the lowering of the neurological level. 
One of the recommendations that's occurred is that in studies that were shut down because of COVID, particularly for conditions that are quite serious, like spinal cord injury, that greater attention be paid by clinicians to the secondary outcomes when interpreting these, uh, the results of these uh, studies. So I'm hopeful that professional societies and clinicians will look at this and say, hey, you know what? Riliazole is a pretty valid, uh, you know, it's a pretty valid option. And um, so I think, again, uh, you know, in terms of trying to interpret the results of this, you know, your first line of, of discussion should be with your healthcare professional. They're there to take care of you. And then, you know, reputable internet sites from organizations such as Asia, Christopher Reeve Foundation, and so on, are another important source of information. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Phalanx, for joining us. Um, really appreciate you going over this paper. It's a really exciting time in the world of SCI and excited to see what happens next. But thank you so much. Thank you for the uh, opportunity to, to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of Asia's Research Committee. The podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, your producer hosts David McMillan and Marla Petrillo, our editor Abby Fox, and production assistant James Concepcion and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at sciperspectivepodcast at gmail.com.